Amen. Good. How good is it to be outside in the sun? Amazing, isn't it? I think we, we started setting up in the marquee and then went, it's actually quite cold in here. <laughs> it's so lovely outside. So, uh, guys, if you are at home on your sofa, then you are missing out. Not just on gathering with God's people, but you're also missing out on the awesome weather. So it's like a double whammy. Uh, but it's good of you to join us from home in any case. We'd love to see you here sometime in the near future. Good. Well, this afternoon, uh, whether you're here week in, week out, or whether you're here for the first time, uh, I just want to add my welcome. My name's Owen. If we've not met, I have the privilege of leading the team here at Foundation Church. Uh, and as Dave's just said, I'm going to be speaking to you about the generosity of God. Uh, and so we're taking just a week out from our series that we've been going through, the New Testament book of Luke. Uh, we are actually still going to be looking at a passage from Luke today, but we've, we've kind of jumped out of sequence for today as we look at the generosity of God. And, and as we prepare for the gift day that Dave's just talked about, not next Sunday, but within the coming weeks, uh, there's all kinds of things I could talk to you about as a church family, as a church community, as we prepare for that. See, I, I could speak to you about the fact that money is spoken of in the Bible as a, as a false god, as an idol, as something which vies for our attention and our devotion and our affection, that, that promises to us something it can't deliver. See, money promises the ability to buy satisfaction or fulfillment. To, if you just buy this thing, then you'll be satisfied. If you could just get that pay rise, then you'd be comfortable or secure. Money promises these things that it can't actually ever truly deliver. It's a functional saviour that we're, we're tempted to try and put our trust in instead of trusting God. See, I, I could talk to you about that. And it would be true and quite probably helpful. I, I could tell you that one of the best ways to deal with that kind of false God, that idol of money, is to dethrone it by giving it away. And that would also be true and consistent with what we find in Scripture. But the problem with doing either of those things, as I've prayed and prepared for today, is that actually they focus on you and what you can do. Or what you should do. And that's not really the heart of the gospel. So today we're not going to talk about all the things that you should do or could do. Instead, we're going to talk about our generous Heavenly Father and all that He has already done for us. And we're going to allow that to, to sink in and do our hearts some good this afternoon. Okay? And we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 15 of Luke's Gospel um, looking at a very famous story called The Prodigal Son. So if you've got a Bible, I would encourage you to open it up to chapter 15 of Luke. We're going to read that together in just a moment. But just before we, we get into that, I have noticed something. I've noticed that on the whole, generous people are quite popular. Have you noticed that? You know someone who's generous, they tend to be quite well liked. We like generous people, we admire generosity in people. It's an attribute that we 
think is a good thing, pretty universally. People like generosity. And I think it's true to say that most of us would like other people to think of us as generous because we see it as a positive attribute. And so just before we get into Luke's Gospel, I, w- I want to mention a couple of very generous people for a minute. So have you heard of Charles Francis Feeney? Anyone heard of Charles Francis Feeney? Lots of blank faces. No. Well, we, you know, his friends call him Chuck. Uh, so now that you're friends, uh, Chuck is an incredibly wealthy man. But he's not nearly as wealthy as he used to be. He made his money pioneering the concept of duty-free shopping in airports. Who doesn't love a bit of duty-free in the airports? And he's a really interesting guy because he made an astronomically large amount of money. And he set his heart on giving it all away. And so although he has made a phenomenal billions and billions of dollars of money... Chuck Feeney lives in a small rented flat. He doesn't own a car. He doesn't actually own his house. He rents it. He flies economy class when he flies. And so far, he's given away over $8 billion. And he's only got $2 million left. So he's doing a pretty good job of giving it all away. Chuck Feeney's a generous man. How about Bill Gates? Now... I'm not going to get into Bill Gates on a bigger picture. We're not talking about politics or any of the other associated things around Bill Gates. But you would be hard-pressed to deny that Bill Gates is a very generous man, whatever you think of his motives. See, he's now given away over $28 billion, which is quite a lot of money to give away. But he still has over $140 billion. So if he's going to catch up with Chuck, he's got a long way to go. He's got a lot of giving away to do still. (laughs) In fact, his $140 billion makes him richer than 40 countries. His personal wealth is larger than the, uh, higher, sorry, than the GDP of over 140 countries, which is quite staggering when you think about it. Just let it sink in for a moment. Bill Gates, I'm sure you didn't need me to tell you this, but he's quite wealthy. In fact, if he gave every single person in the world... $10, every single person on the face of the planet, $10, he would still have a lot of money. In fact, he'd still be a billionaire. Not a millionaire, a billionaire. In fact, Bill earns over $130 a second in interest on investments alone. If Bill Gates saw two £50 notes on the floor, it is literally not worth his time bending down and picking them up. (laughs) It's staggering, isn't it? Goodness me. And if he was to give away all of his wealth, like Chuck Feeney, allowing for no more earnings on investments, no more income for the rest of his days, just the money he currently has, he would need to give away or spend, if he was going to get rid of his entire fortune, over $6 million a day, every day, for the next 35 years. Bill Gates is rich. And whatever you think of him, it's undeniable that he's very generous too. But now I want to ask, how do you think of God? 
How do you think of God? Do you think of God when you just kind of naturally think of him? Do you think of him as generous? Or do you think of him as a kind of stingy, repressive megalomaniac who just kind of wants to control everyone and have it all his own way? How do you think of God? Do you think of him as a distant and disinterested deity that's kind of out there somewhere, doesn't really care that much for what's going on, or, or as a doting father who wants the best for his children? Because the Bible paints a picture of God as an outrageously generous father. As well as being the creator and source of all things and, and therefore limitless in his resources, he's also unrelentingly generous with all that he has. So much so that compared to the riches and generosity of God, Bill Gates is a tight-fisted pauper. And Chuck Feeney the same. Yeah? Compared to, if you could stack them up against God, compared to the wealth and generosity of God, Bill Gates is a, is a tight-fisted pauper. Remember, he's giving away more than all of us combined will earn in our entire lives. He's giving that away. But compared to God, he looks skin and stingy. You see, right from the word go, when God created, he began giving. That's what we read in the Bible, yeah? So he, first, he gave life. God's a giving God. Right from the first things we read about him in Scripture, we read that he's, he's giving. He gives life. In Genesis 1:29, then having given life and created mankind, he gives food. We read in, in Genesis 1.29, he says to Adam and Eve, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with a seed in it, they will be yours for food. God gives, he provides. Having created everything, we find God giving life and then in his first interaction with people, he provides for them, he gives to them, he's generous towards them. And even when mankind rebel against God, we read in Genesis 3, the fall, as Adam and Eve turn their backs on him and they choose to go their own way and to rebel against him, how does God respond? He deals with them generously. We read in, in Genesis 3, 21, that he provides for them. He provides clothes for them, garments made of animal skin to cover them. See, the, God just keeps giving. And giving, even when we turn our backs on him. It carries on through scripture. We could, we could keep going. Genesis 9, verse 3, after the flood, after God has provided, given, generously, safe passage for Noah and his family and the animals in the ark, they come out and he gives again. This time he says to Noah, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Praise God. He gave us meat as well. And so it continues through history. God is a giving God. We read in James chapter 1, verse 17, that every good and perfect gift comes from him. That's how Will started us off today, isn't it? He cares for, sustains, and generously provides for all that he's made. That's how God deals with you. 
with us. We need to remember that. All that is truly good and enjoyable about this life has been given generously by God. Let's take food, for instance. I, I love this. Right? This is how amazingly generous God is and how good he is. Because maybe you don't ever have weird thoughts like this, but I think about this kind of stuff all the time because I'm a little bit strange. But, but actually, the fact that food tastes good because God's generous, right? He didn't have to make it taste good. It could have just been, he would have provided perfectly for us, for us if food was purely functional. Yeah, he still would have provided sustenance for his creation, wouldn't he? See, God could have said, I'm going to provide all this stuff for you to eat, and it's, it's functional. It's just, it's going to be sufficient to keep you alive and, and give you all the nutrition that you need. But he didn't simply do that, did he? Because it tastes jolly good. I mean, just it's, it's crazy, right? He could have just made it fuel just to keep us alive, and that would still be generous. But God is so good and so generous that he actually made it pleasurable, enjoyable to eat. He gave us plants and animals to eat, and he made them delicious. And I'm very grateful to him for that fact. Everything good on this earth is the overflow of his generosity. Jesus used stories called parables to teach people about what God was like and how he dealt with people. And what we're going to look at today is one of these parables. But when you read them, you'll find, if you look at them, that consistently, parable after parable after parable, as God the Father is depicted in these parables, he is outrageously, unreasonably, and unflinchingly generous. Time after time after time. You, you will not find a parable in which God is anything other than generous towards his creation. And so we're going to spend a little while now reading one of those parables and seeing what it tells us about the generosity of God. And it's called the parable of the prodigal son, uh, or the lost son, but I think it could perhaps just as easily be titled The Generous Father. And, and just to help us as we come to it, we need to understand a bit of context and setting. So as we begin the chapter in Luke, verses 1 and 2, we read this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, as to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners. And eats with them. What's going on here? The tax collectors and the sinners had gathered to hear Jesus, to receive from him. And the religious leaders of the day didn't take too kindly to it. And this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Who does he think he is? He can't be any kind of holy man if he receives these kind of people. How could he claim to be a good teacher? How could he possibly? claim to be a holy man when he associates with such undesirable and unholy people as these. But Jesus knows their accusations. And the teaching we receive in the rest of Luke chapter 15, including the parable of the prodigal son, comes in that context. Jesus is surrounded by people who know that they're 
not good enough on their own merit, people who know that they've fallen short of God's plan for humanity, people who know that compared with the religious elite, they don't measure up. They're the outcasts, the rejects, the failures. Jesus is surrounded by those people. And in that context, he wants to help them understand what God is really like and how God wants to bring hope and life and forgiveness to them. So if you're less than perfect, if you're not particularly religious, if you know that even this week, maybe even today, you've messed up, you've, you've failed to live even to your own standards, let alone God's, then this is for you. Jesus wants to draw you close just as he drew those tax collectors and sinners and outcasts around him. He wants to draw you close today too. We're going to read together from verse 11 and we'll stop, we'll pause at points to kind of unpack and explain what's going on as we go. So we read from verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Pause. What's going on? What is it that the son asks for? When he says, give me a share of the estate or give me my share of the estate, he is asking for his share of the father's possessions that he would ordinarily receive when his father died. This is a really rude ask. It's not like, could you just loan me a few pounds because I want to deposit for a house. He's like, Dad, everything that's supposed to come to me when you die, I want it now. Culturally, this is, this is the equivalent in a society that highly revered and respected parents. This is equivalent of saying, Dad, I literally can't wait for you to die. I'm not really interested in you. I just want your stuff. Would you give it to me now? Incredibly rude. And how does the father respond? Despite the insulting request, the disrespect, the rejection, the father selflessly grants it. Gives the son the inheritance. He gives him what he asks for. That's staggering, isn't it? I don't know. Like, I mean, we're not anywhere near that yet. I don't think I'd respond like that to my children. <laughs> Uh, but hey, and this is how God deals with us. This father in the story we need to know from the word go represents God. And we're just like that son. It's humanity. Even when we turn our backs on him, even when we say with our actions and some of us with our words, we want the life you've given, we want to enjoy all the good things that you've provided, we want to enjoy the world that you've created, but we don't want you, we're going to behave as though you're dead. Isn't that just the way the world lives so often? How we can be tempted to live? God, we want to enjoy all the things that you've made and provided so generously, but we don't want you. We're going to pretend like you're dead. It's exactly what the son said to his father, and it's just the way we so often treat God. 
We carry on. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, this inheritance that he'd got early from his dad, and he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Son doesn't even use this stuff wisely. It's just all burned up in pleasure and selfish pursuit. He's living for him. He's not picked up anything of the generous heart of his father. Instead, he's living solely to please himself with what he's received from the father. No intention of sticking around to share what the father had freely given him with the rest of the family. Instead, he heads off and uses it selfishly. In the same way, mankind was made in the image of God to be generous, like our heavenly father. And instead, when humans turn their backs on God and reject his image in us, and instead, like the son, we exchange the father's generosity for selfishness. And all that he's given us, instead of using it to bless and be generous to others, we use it for our own selfish gain. We're probably more like the son in this story than any of us would care to admit if we're honest with ourselves. We read on from verse 14. After he had spent everything, this is the son, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to field to feed the pigs. Just very quickly, a cultural bit. This is into a Jewish context. Pigs are unclean animals. This is the most kind of socially outrageous thing that this man could do to go and work with and feed the pigs. Just being near them, being in contact with them in any way would make him unclean. He was low. We read from verse 16. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Having blown the lot, the son realizes that he needs the father. He comes to his senses and resolves to go back, but actually he, he thinks that he needs to go back no longer as a son. Do you notice that? He says, uh, he says, maybe I can go back and say to him, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, Make me like one of your hired servants. He thinks, I, I know my father can provide for me, but, but, but I need to go as a servant. I need to earn my place in his house. I need to earn his favor. I need to earn my keep. He knows he's messed up big time. And this thinking of, I need to earn his favor i'm going to need to earn my place in his house like a hired servant is logical isn't it actually like if you knew you'd messed up that monumentally against your father i think we would probably 
get to the same point. But it's certainly how most of us view God. Remember, that's what's really going on here. This is a, this is a parable. It's a, it's a story with a meaning. We're like that son. And when we come to our senses and recognize that we've rejected God and used what he's given us selfishly instead of for his glory, we've used it for our own pleasure and we turn back and say, I need, I need to come back to him. Our temptation is to be just like this son and go, well, I, I need to do better. Like I need to be morally good. Like I need to earn God's favor. I understand what it says. I know I've fallen short. Maybe if I can just be good enough, then God will accept me. Maybe if I can just be good enough, then he'll receive me back. Perhaps if I do enough good things, then he'll let me into heaven. Isn't that so often the way we think or the way people talk? I'm sure you've thought it or had conversations with people who are like, I think I, I you know, I've probably, I'm, you know, I'm basically a good person. I, I work hard. I do, I try to do all the right things. So I think, yeah, I, I'll kind of get in. It's the way this son was thinking. So how does God respond? How does the father respond? Is that how this deal works? Let's find out. We read from verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The father was waiting for his son to return. Stunning, isn't it? After the son said, Dad, I'd rather you were dead. Give me your stuff. I'm off. And then as he returns, he finds the father is waiting for him. And more than that, as he approaches, the father doesn't wait for him to arrive at the door and to grovel and say, Dad, I'm so sorry. Please, would you have me back? I'm going to come in as a servant. I'll work to be under your roof. But just please, no. The father sees the son on the horizon and he, he runs to meet him. He has compassion on him. He loves his son. And so he comes out to meet him. This is an incredibly undignified picture. This isn't how it should be, right? Older men in the culture of the day, contextually, that Jesus was speaking into, they don't run. <laughs> that's undignified. That's improper. He should wait for the son to come to him. But moved out of love and compassion, his son, who was as good as dead to him, has returned back to the family. The father is overjoyed. He runs out to meet him. He embraces him. He kisses his son. And then we read this from verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Let's not miss that. That's not incidental in the story. That's so important. See, as God comes to meet us, says, I want to welcome you back as my son. The son actually, he, he, there's an appropriateness to his response. He doesn't make any excuses. Neither should we when we come to confess our sin before God. There's forgiveness to be found. He's faithful to forgive. He's, he's running to meet you. But it's appropriate that the son confessed his sin. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. There's a soberness. We need to have that same kind of soberness with God. But 
This is how God responds. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. That's a sign of sonship, again, of being in the family, of being an heir, of receiving the inheritance. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The son rightly pointed out his failures. But the father is so outrageously generous. He forgives him. He clothes him in the best robe. He puts a ring on his finger that says he's a son and they feast. They party. We've not got time to read on. Maybe read the rest at home. But the older son (laughs) doesn't take too kindly to it. says it's not fair that his brother should be received back in that way. He doesn't deserve it. And actually, you know, the older brother's right. The younger brother doesn't deserve it. Do you know what? You don't deserve God's mercy. (laughs) Other do I. But that's not how God works. Because of Jesus, who came, who did deserve God's love, who never did anything to turn his back on the Father, Christ came, suffered and died in your place. And so the Father is unreasonably generous, and it offends the self-righteous religious ones. I want to say, whoever you are, and whether you recognize it or not, whether you feel like it or not, God has been incredibly generous to you. You need to hear that today. The Father has provided for you generously in creation. But most amazingly, he has been generous by sending his son, Jesus. Not not to condemn the world, but to save it. And Jesus, the son, is incredibly generous, just like his father. Jesus laid down his life freely, willingly, in exchange for ours. Bearing the weight of your sin at the cross so that you could come back to the Father as that son in the story came back to his, not as a servant earning your way, but as a son, forgiven. Just digest that for a minute. It's amazing, isn't it? The most amazing thing about the generosity of God is that he's generous to those who've done nothing to deserve it. Father, Son, and Spirit, God is generous. Ceaselessly, relentlessly, outrageously generous. You will not open the Bible anywhere and find any other account of God. And that he is generous towards all that he's made. Why am I telling you that? Why is it important that we grasp that? Am I telling you it so that you resolve to be better and work harder? 
you know, one of our kind of three pursuits as a church is growing like Jesus, isn't it? Of those three core things that we said, we want to be like that as a church community, knowing Jesus, growing like Jesus and going with Jesus. So am I telling you about the generosity of God so that you grit your teeth and go, I need to be more generous like he is. I need to work harder. I need to do better. I need to try. I'm not good enough at this. I need to try harder. Do you think that's why I'm saying it? No. <laughs> See, my aim in telling you this is that you would see the generosity of God displayed in Jesus and that you'd be captivated by him. That you'd realize how much unlike us he is and therefore how worthy of worship he is and that in response you'd worship him. See, the point of us understanding and grasping the generosity of God is not so that we feel a burden to try and live up to it, but that instead we recognize that Christ has done it on our behalf and we bask in his glory and his kindness and his generosity towards us. The point is that we would stand in awe of the generous love of God. Because when we do, you know what happens? Our natural overflow is to be generous. It's not by gritting our teeth and determining to try harder. It's by delighting in all that he is. It flows out of us. Not in order to earn his approval, but because he has already approved, because he first loved us. You see, the more you accept and believe the cultural narrative that you need more to be content and be fulfilled, then the more you'll be dissatisfied and selfish. It's just the way it is, right? Yet, the more you recognize that every breath is a gracious gift from God, the more you recognize that every good and perfect thing comes from him, the more you celebrate his generosity towards you and thank him that he hasn't treated you as your sins deserve, but instead he has been outrageously generous towards you, then do you know what happens? The more generous and open-handed you'll be. It's like a natural response, not by determining to try harder, but by delighting in what he's already done. See, ultimately... To live a selfish and self-centered life is a rejection of the image of God in you and a denial of the work of Jesus at the cross. Christians should be the most generous people on the face of the earth because they've seen and understood and daily celebrate the generosity of God towards them. True generosity is an overflow of gratitude. How does this work in my life? I know for a fact, and you can ask my family. They'll tell you this is true. I know that the less I celebrate the generosity of God towards me, then the more grumpy and self-centered I am. It's just true. Yeah? And maybe, maybe that's true for you as well. I'm more likely to get a bit of mild road rage more likely to be snappy with Jenny and the children. I'm more likely to become dissatisfied with my stuff and chase after the next upgrade, the faster, bigger, better thing. 
but I know the opposite's also true because I've seen it in my life. I hope my family have too. That when I daily remind myself of the generosity of God, when I daily remind myself of what Christ has done for me, that in him I have God's riches at, at Christ's expense, that my future is secure in heaven, not because of my work, but because of his, that every breath is a, a gift of grace from him. When I cultivate that grateful attitude, then I'm far more open-handed with my stuff and with my time, with my dealings with other people. I'm more content with what I have and even more I'm willing to give it away serve others, to put them first. It's what happens. So how about you? Where do you sit today? Do you, do you find yourself constantly grabbing for the next thing? Thinking, if I just had, if I could just get, maybe it's time not generous with your time because you're constantly trying to pack it to live for yourself. We're going to take a few moments. We're going to sing one final song, Phil. I wonder if you could, the guys could come to lead us. As we do, we're going to remind each other in song about the generosity of God towards us. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're listening today and you have been thinking, I I'm not even 100% sure why I'm listening to this. <laughs> but maybe like someone invited you or you just joined us online. But as we've opened the Bible and looked at this story of a generous God, you're thinking, I, I, I want in. <laughs> I want to know the freedom of knowing that knowing him. I want to understand what it feels like to, to live in the good of his generosity. And I'm telling you this afternoon, you can know that for yourself. You can know with certainty that your future is secure and that it's not based on you getting it all right to earn God's approval, but it's based on what Christ Jesus has already done on your behalf. And if that's you, then I want to invite you to pray a simple prayer with me right where you are. And if you're already a Christian, then you might want to echo this prayer for yourself too and say, God, I'm coming back to you again today. I'm, I'm sorry that I've behaved like that son, that I've turned my back on you, that I've acted as if I'd rather you were dead and I just want to do things my way. I've taken all that you've generously given and I've been using it for my own selfish gain instead of generously blessing others with it. Maybe you want to echo this where you are. Let's stand and then we're going to come to sing this final song. Jesus, I thank you that you willingly gave your life in my place at the cross so that I could be forgiven, so that I could receive the most generous gift of all, eternal life. 
God, I thank you that you offer me a fresh start, new life with you at the center. I'm sorry that I've ignored you, that I've rejected you, that I've lived my life as though I don't need you. Jesus, I leave my rebellion behind now and I turn to you. Please forgive me and fill me now with your spirit that is given as an assurance of salvation to help me to live for you. Thank you so much, God, that you receive us now, just like the father in that story who ran to embrace his son. Lord God, I'm going your way from now on. I'm following you. Please help me to work that out day to day for your glory. Amen.